Let's just bow our heads. Father in heaven, it's good to be here on a Sabbath morning at a special meeting here of people that are committed to doing your will. We pray that uh, as we usher in the meetings today on your holy Sabbath day that we will all gain a blessing, that your angels will be here, that your Holy Spirit's presence will be felt here in a mighty way. We just pray that as we contemplate of, of your creative power, if we contemplate about you as our creator, creator and your creative power, may our hearts be lifted up to heavenly things. May, may we be determined to serve you and be faithful to you. Bless every participant here, each one of us that face struggles and the attacks of the devil. We just pray that uh, we'll be empowered by your grace and your power to resist and stand for you. So we pray that you'll be with us. Speak through me as we look at words of truth this morning in the scriptures and the spirit of prophecy. And we just pray that our minds will be focused on heaven today. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Good morning. It's good to see you all here. It's a little early in the morning, but at least it's cool. And uh, that's a blessing. I, uh, for those of you who don't know me, I'm George Jackson. I work here at Weimar College, chair of the Health Sciences Department. Uh, I've spoken a few times earlier. Some of you may have been in my breakout session. For those that have been in my earlier sessions, there'll be a little bit of a review. We've covered some of these points in the other sessions. But uh, I've got to admit, I, I don't think I've ever sung that hymn that we just sang. That was a beautiful hymn. I don't, I don't think I've ever heard it. Uh, and... Uh, that's a blessing. Well, today is a day dedicated, it appears, to creation. And I, uh, uh, we're looking at the talks that will be occurring today, uh, and that's a good thing because this is the Sabbath. It's a good day to talk about creation on the Sabbath, the very day that commemorates and culminated, uh, well, basically the culmination of creation and commemorates God's creative works. But, you know, we... We face challenging times, and uh, it's a time that we all need to be fortified in our minds when we face uh, other things that want to take us away from what God has taught. When people ask me what I believe, uh, I like to say, well, go to Patriarchs and Prophets, read Chapter 2, The Creation, and read Chapter 9, The Literal, literal Week, and that's what I believe. If uh, you want some, uh, if you if you want to protect your mind and uh, just fill your mind with the correct perspective on things, read Genesis one and two, but then go on and read chapter two and chapter nine in Patriarchs and Prophets, and read it a number of times, because the information there is unequivocal how we got here how God did it, and how he is our creator. Creation is a reoccurring theme in the Bible, and we'll just, we'll just hit a few of those as we look uh, today at our short presentation. And if you start the reading the chapter, the creation, chapter 2 in Patriarchs and Prophets, this will be the first sentences that you get. And she starts with scripture right from the beginning. By the word of the Lord were the heavens made, and all the host of them by the breath of his mouth. For he spake, and it was. 
He commanded, and it stood fast, there in Psalms 33, 6, and 9. He laid the foundations of the earth, that it should not be removed forever. Psalms 104 and verse 5. And that's how she starts, right from the, point, right from the start, talking about Scripture and how God is our creator. Now, uh, I have spent... <clears throat> More of my life overseas in Australia, although I was born here in California. Uh, when I was a teenager, I went to Australia, and I thought I was never coming back, because that was my new home. So I've spent more of my life in Australia than I have in the U.S., and my wife and my children are Australians. But I was told, and I didn't know this, that if you dial 411, it's kind of an information hotline in this country. I, you know, I didn't know that. So it's like 411 is an information Line. Well, you can dial 411 hotline in Revelation as well and find out some important information. But let's just look at Revelation 4.10 first. <clears throat> and we got this vision in heaven where it says, The four and twenty elders fall down before him that sat on the throne and worship him that liveth forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Now what did they say? Thou art worthy, O Lord to receive glory and honor and power. Why? For thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. I might just mention that I'm a biologist. I've spent more of, uh, you know, most of my career as a scientist, as a researcher, as a marine biologist. So uh, issues of creation are kind of close to my heart. And I faced, of course, issues of uh, pagan and Greek philosophies being taught to me uh, as I was doing my learning. So when I'm looking at creation, I'm looking at, at, a, at from a perspective of a biologist. That's, that's what I am. Uh, and that was my, my work, has been a biologist prior to coming here to Weimar. But I'm still a marine biologist, although it's the first time in many, many years that I haven't lived near the ocean. So, uh, but I like the mountains, too, so that's OK. Six literal days. Let's, I mean, we can turn, if you have your Bibles, you can just glance through your Bible in Genesis chapter 1. And if, as you glance through those, you look at uh, your eye comes to Genesis chapter 1 and, and verse 5. And it says, and the evening and the morning were the first day. And then you glance down to verse 8, and it says, the second day. And verse 13 is the third day. And verse 19 says it was the fourth day. And verse 23 says it was the fifth day. I mean, it, like it's really repetitive. And then you get to verse 31, and it says, And God saw everything that he had made, and indeed it was very good. So the evening and the morning were the sixth day. So it, Genesis can't be any clearer how God, where we came from and how it started. It really can't. But then, of course, we get to the seventh day, and we're commemorating that today. The culmination of creation, or it, it, it was all brought together at the end by the Sabbath. And in Genesis 2, 2 and 3, it sort of says, thus. So thus, now that we've done, now that God has done all this, thus, the heavens and the earth and all the host of them, everything, were finished. And on the seventh day, God ended his work, which he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he had done. You know, it's, kind of, it's even repeating it, so you don't miss the point. 
Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it he rest from all his work, which God had created and made. Like, it, it just keeps revisiting. The Bible keeps telling us over and over. Don't miss the point. God rested because he created all things. He created it. He made it. He's the creator God. That's why we're here on this Sabbath, to, to worship our creator and commemorate the Sabbath, because that's what he asked us to do. And so creation in Genesis commemorates the Sabbath. And then as we go through the theme of the Bible, we come to the time when God hands down the Ten Commandments there on Mount Sinai. And, and God tells specifically and writes it down what those Ten Commandments are to the children of Israel. And we find that in Exodus 28 to 11. And it's in fact a reminder of what God did. Now we all know Exodus 28 to 11, but it's nice to read it because it makes a point. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days shalt thou labor and do all thy work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord thy God. In it thou shalt not do any work, thou nor thy son nor thy daughter, thy manservant nor thy maidservant, nor thy cattle, nor thy stranger that is within thy gates. Why? For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that in them is, and rested the seventh day. Wherefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. Well, we worship God because he's our creator. And he, and he created the earth in six literal days. He created man, and then he rested, and he created the Sabbath. I mentioned the literal week in Patriarchs and Prophets. Uh, and I think most of the quotes I have this morning are from, from those two chapters, the literal week and the creation. We're told on page 111, like the Sabbath, the week originated at creation. And it has been preserved and brought down to us through Bible history. God himself measured off the first week as a sample for successive weeks to the close of time. Like every other, it consisted of seven literal days. Seven literal days. Six days were employed in the work of creation. Upon the seventh, God rested. And he then blessed this day and set it apart as a day of rest for man. And I say to my family often, you know, you know, there are wonderful Christian people that don't know about the Sabbath. They worship God on a different day. And, and that's okay because they don't, they, they don't know any better. But, you know, they do miss out on a special blessing because they don't know about it. We as Seventh-day Adventist people that have this wonderful understanding of truth that God has given us have this special time of special blessing that God just pours out. And I, I can't help it, but many, many Sabbaths you think you can just feel the blessings just sort of flowing over you on the Sabbath. And it's a special time that God has set aside. And uh, what a blessing the Sabbath is. What a blessing to be uh, at a meeting like this on a Sabbath uh, and uh, with committed people who are dedicating to do God's will. Uh, committed young people that want to serve God and aren't interested in what the world has to offer is a great inspiration. Young people, you are an inspiration where those of us who are no longer young uh, cannot uh, have that influence and inspiration to other people. Genesis also, and I, just to also mention that we have uh, creation, we've got the Sabbath, but it also commemorates and establishes salvation. 
And that's in that first promises, promise there in Genesis 3.15 where uh, Adam and Eve had fallen. They were uh, banished from their beautiful garden home. And, and it all seemed so hopeless. But God came and told them that there was going to be a time and there was a way that they could reinstate, they'd be reinstated to where they had fallen from. And God said, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and he shall bruise his heel. So God there showed that this terrible thing of sin was going to run its course, but there was a way for man to ultimately be recreated and reinstated in that same relationship with his maker that he had there at the beginning. So Genesis commemorates salvation and actually is the first point of establishing the plan of salvation. So the Genesis creation, God creates the, earth, the world, he creates man, he then, the culmination of that is the Sabbath, a pillar of our faith, and as I said in uh, the breakout sessions earlier, in fact, creation is a pillar of our faith. If you sweep away your belief in creation, you suddenly undermine the authority of Scripture and what God is saying. You've got to throw out the spirit of prophecy because she couldn't say it any straighter than she has about how we were created. And you sweep away everything. So uh, creation and indeed the Sabbath as well, sitting right in, because the Sabbath is intricately tied with creation. Genesis 1 there provides an explanation of our origin, who we are, where we came from. Let us make man in our image. There the Godhead said, let's make man. And he's, we're going to make him in an image like us. And then, of course, it introduces salvation, the first promise, that there was going to be a way for man to be recreated and reinstated with his creator. Now, let me just say that se Seventh-day Adventists have never have never moved from the position of a six-day creation. They just never have. We've always maintained that. And that was reiterated by our general conference president just a couple weekends ago. We have never moved from a literal six-day creation. If people are teaching something else than a literal six-day creation, they are outside the beliefs of the Bible, the spirit of prophecy, and the Seventh-day Adventist Church. They're the ones that have moved. We have always maintained this truth. We've never changed. It's always been there. So don't be fooled if somebody is teaching something else. It hasn't come from Scripture. It's come from Greek philosophy and humanism and various other things, atheism. It has not come from our teachings as Seventh-day Adventist people. Now, let's talk about origin views just a little bit. Uh, you know, people, it's kind of a hot topic at the moment, which kind of surprises me. I mean, why would we have to be re reiterating creation? I mean, that seems to me that it should be so fundamental and so ingrained into who we are as a people that you wouldn't think we'd even have to talk about it. We'd just go with the package, and, and it, why would it be something you would even have to, to emphasize that it's so much who we are as a people, but unfortunately, we're kind of at a sad time in world's history where people are getting confused about their origins, even our Seventh-day Adventist people. Well, there's atheistic evolution. That's Darwinian evolution that arose back in the times of Ellen White. 
And uh, Darwin, who was a, he was a good biologist. He, he published a lot of stuff. He observed. He was an ecologist and so forth. And as he traveled the world, he began to develop these ideas that carried him further and further down a path, uh, further and further away from God. And he started speculating and theorizing and hypothesizing and eventually uh, published, wrote The Origin of Species, and that became known as Darwinian evolution. And then, of course, we have what we've been talking about is special creation as described and interpreted literally in Genesis. That's what we believe as Seventh-day Adventist people, special creation. That life is indeed incredibly intricate, that it didn't arise by spontaneous generation back in the beginning from non-life, that even when we look at the, the incredible complexity of molecular biology in the cell and everything, we can see the hand of a creator if we look at nature. But because people tend to be enamored by science and a man's knowledge and Greek philosophies and so forth, they, they began to sort of follow the ways of the world, those that were Christians and believers, and came up with something called theistic evolution, which is kind of a blend between the first two, atheistic evolution and special creation. They kind of want to believe in God, but they kind of want to adopt what the world's teaching as well, and they come up with this strange mix. Now, there's quite a continuum in theistic evolution. Uh, you know, there's a broad spectrum of beliefs, and kind of at one end of the continuum, God, you know, they believe that, well, you know, life is so complex that God had to start it off somehow in the beginning with the DNA and the cells and all that. And so they believe that God just sort of kicked it off and then sat back and let it evolve. Now, at the other end of the continuum, the still believing in theistic evolution, they, they, they believe in, in this kind of evolutionary process, but they kind of see God stepping in along the way, creating miracles as, as things kind of evolved. It's a, it, it, it really is a, a, a wacky belief. I mean, it really is really a, a confusing mix of, of beliefs, and, and it really doesn't make any sense. You've got to be careful. A lot of you are students, I know. Some of you may be in Seventh-day Adventist institutions. Others of you may be or facing attending a secular university. I spent two years of my initial education. Actually, I, I went through Adventist education for my uh, high school and so forth. Uh, I started in third grade in Adventist institution. Wonderful, right here in California. Then I went overseas and I spent two years in an Adventist institution. And then I went to pursue marine biology because I was always such a biologist at heart uh, at a secular institution and there did my undergraduate, my honors in the British system uh, and then a PhD. And I shared that testimony earlier on, and you can listen to that on Audioverse if you didn't hear that. At eight, probably 18 years old, still a teenager, I found myself in a Seventh-day Adventist institution starting to take some of those first biology classes. I was a biologist as long as I could remember, wanting to be a biologist. And I wasn't prepared for what hit me at that institution. I'm talking 30 years ago, 30 years ago, at a Seventh-day Adventist institution, not in this country. And there were two lectures there. They call them lecturers in Australia. And they were regularly teaching millions of years. I mean, regularly. 
unashamedly teaching, they called them, I can remember they called it geologic years. I thought, well, that must be something different than regular years because they're referring to geologic years. I mean, I wasn't even thinking for myself. Uh, and I thought, well, that's, that's just geologic time. That's different than normal time. I can remember all that. And they were basically ridiculing a young earth. I mean, they were openly. They didn't believe it. They didn't teach it. Uh, they were pretty open about it. And I can, I can even remember one specific instance where these two scientists were invited to a creation uh, kind of conference and field trip where they were going to New Zealand and they were going to be looking at evidence for creation. That sounds like a great thing to do. And they were kind of mocking that, thinking, well, that's not the way you do science. You know, you don't do things that way. And I, I guess they were going to stir up this conference. Uh, and, and it was a sad state of affairs. And, and the scary thing about that is I was young, I was 18. I looked up to these guys, and, and I was just soaking it in. You know, I, just, I, I wasn't thinking for myself, and I guess they were clouding my mind. And I hate to think of what would have, I mean, isn't a terrible thought. I hate to think what would have happened had I stayed there at that Seventh-day Adventist institution. I mean, what a, what a, what a thing to have to even say. But uh, I left that institution, went to pursue my education somewhere else. And, uh, you know, I, that was the world. I knew that I was different from the world and, and because that was a secular institution. And, and I guess maybe I was more on guard. And, and when I was at that secular institution is when I went through my my, my real change and basically a, 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 a more of a conversion experience where I, I really uh, had to make some decisions, and, and that's a whole other story. But the point is, is what you believe can have not only a huge influence on others, but it can have eternal consequences. And, you know, I've been thinking about it this week. There are going to be teachers, perhaps teachers in our institutions, that are going to face the judgment. And there's going to be young people and students that are going to be lost because of what they taught them. And, and isn't that a, just a solemn thought? You're going to stand in the judgment with the blood of somebody on your hands because you taught them Greek philosophy and paganism instead of the truth. And... Uh, I don't want to be in that position. As I said earlier in the seminars, you need to know what your lecturer or your professor believes. If you don't know what they believe, he or she, I don't think that's a good sign. I think you need to know, you know, they throw this out and they throw that out, but I'm not going to say anything, you know, you just need to, I don't think that's a good thing. I think if, I mean, if you're in a, if you're in a, in a, in a Christian Seventh-day Adventist institution, you need to teach the truth, and you need, to, you need to believe it. You need to mentor students, and that's what we do here at Weimar. And so, you know, the students in my classes know where I stand. In fact, they probably have to shut me up sometimes. Uh, you know, I mean, it's, I want them to know what I believe. We want to know the truth. And if you hear things like academic freedom, be careful. <laughs> if people are using terms like we need to have academic freedom, yeah, we, do, we can have academic freedom, but... Uh, just be careful, because it usually means we want to toy around with Greek philosophies, and it's, it, it, you just got to be careful. So that's a flag. If you don't know what they believe, and you hear people talking about academic freedom, uh, you know, we're here at a Christian uh, institution. We have revelation and truth as our foundation. 
not uh, just unending hypotheses and ideas. Know before you go. And that's if you're going to a university, if you're going to a college, whatever that might be as a young person, know what you believe before you're there. As we discussed earlier in my breakout sessions, that, that verse in Daniel 1 where Daniel purposed in his heart. It was in his heart. So he didn't waver when he started facing all the stuff that he faced there in the university, the, the National University of Babylon. You know, and he would, have been, he would have had all sorts of things thrown at him. Spiritualism and all sorts of things you can imagine. And, but he had his mind made up before he went. And that was my problem when I went to that Adventist institution. You know, I was there to learn and I was just kind of soaking it in. I didn't have my mind made up. I, I, didn't, I mean, I was young. I, I, I didn't have the resources that so many of you have now. And uh, I should have known better. But I was influenced. And the point is also, you as a young person, uh, we don't need that. Why is it doing that? Okay. Well, you as a young person can really have the opportunity to reach the hearts of your fellow young person student. Because there's something when you're young, as I demonstrated, my heart was open and, and I was kind of soaking this stuff up. You're, you're open. And there's something that happens when you do your undergraduate training and then you do your postgraduate training and then you may become a scientist where you're, you're going to conferences and mixing with pagan colleagues and publishing and all that, that you develop this bias. And and you get to the point where you're all, you, many of these people, are they even reachable anymore? Because they've been so indoctrinated in, in, in Darwinian theories that, that are, especially if you're a biologist, that uh, we need to reach people before they get to that, when they get to that point, they're a lot harder to reach. Uh, so there's, and you, you know, you see in the world that, you know, a lot of uprisings and things start with students because students seem to, to, to be where things are happening and they think differently about things. And when you're facing some of these, you know, professors and so forth in universities, they're hard cases. I mean, they have spent years and years of indoctrination and uh, it's not easy. Now, God can reach anybody's heart, but it comes to a point if you just keep closing your heart, you get harder and harder to reach. And that's the case with many, they're, they're hardcore guys out in these institutions and they really are, you know, they believe uh, in what, um, in, in all this Darwinian stuff. Now, here's a sad testimony. Back over a year ago, when all this stuff started blowing around about evolution and what was going on, and we are all familiar with that, a colleague of mine sent me, copied to me or forwarded to me this email from a mom. A mom. We say moms in Australia. <laughs> a mom. Sad it's a mom's sad testimony. It is about her daughter, and I didn't name the institution, but I might just say it was a Seventh-day Adventist institution, not in California. And she said, this is her quote, there are some scientists here at this institution who helped my oldest daughter lose her belief in God. They don't believe in the seven-day creation and teach the kids the same. My daughter just graduated with a degree in physics. She's headed to grad school in Massachusetts now. That was a mom's testimony about her daughter, who in good faith sent her 
to a Seventh-day Adventist institution. This is her quote. She said that this is what she said. There were people there that helped her to lose her belief in God. Uh, you know, I wouldn't want to be that instructor. That's all I would say. Now, theistic evolution was hit head on by Ellen White. Head on. And uh, it, was, it was going around back then. Again, in that chapter, the literal week, page 111. But the assumption that the events of the first week required thousands upon thousands of years. So people in theistic evolution say, well, uh, creation is just kind of a metaphor or something, and it actually represents vast periods of time, and God's sort of having some part to do with it. it it's a real confused mess. It really is. And she says, you know, those people that are saying this strikes directly at the foundation of the fourth commandment. It represents the creators as commanding men to observe the lit literal week of days in commemoration of vast indefinite periods. doesn't make any sense, does it? I mean, how does the Sabbath have any, mean anything anymore? This is unlike his method of dealing with his creatures. It makes indefinite and obscure that which he has made very plain. It is infidelity in the most insidious and hence most dangerous form. Its real character is so disguised that it is held and taught by many who profess to believe the Bible. And that's the point. It's insidious and it's disguised. And you kind of, you, you get deceived. And so, be, young person, be aware when people start toying with this stuff and they try to bring Darwinian evolution into some sort of creation structure and, and you end up in confusion. Now, it's easy to spot the error because it just, you think, well, how did that happen? I can remember, I can remember people talking about this at the public university. By then I had received my first degree and I was working and one of the lectures there, because we had uh, a, a Sunday keeping uh, uh, lecture there who was very, he believed strongly in God, but he was also a strong evolutionist and he would be, and he, he was outspoken, he was publishing things in the, in the, in the press and so forth. And I can remember discussing this well, with one of the other lecturers, saying, well, how, how, did, how do you believe in you know, the creation of man if you believe in evolution, and yet God created man? How can you be a Christian? I mean, I, I, by then I could say, well, I don't understand this. How can you believe that and say God created man, but you believe in evolution? And, and I remember discussing with this other lecturer, who she, I don't believe she was a Christian, and you know, it, 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 just, just no real answer. It's just confusion. So be careful, because she calls it infidelity in its most insidious and hence most dangerous form. So theistic evolution, it actually doesn't work. Trying to mix the two, it makes no sense. It, the other point is it requires the death of organisms during an extended creation process. So, you know, well, they say creation doesn't represent, they're not literal days. It, it's actually, I can remember, remember I was telling you back at my, uh, when I was in a Seventh-day Adventist institution, late, years later, the, when I was uh, further on down the career, I, I caught up with that teacher again. And he actually said, when we were discussing this very issue, in the facade he was hiding behind, and he said, 
I think he used it like thermodynamics. He said, well, how would you, you know, teach thermodynamics to, in his, the, the example he used was an aborigine or somebody living in, in, in simple primitive conditions and you've got to explain thermodynamics, the laws of thermodynamics to him. And, and he was saying, well, that's basically creation is, is, you know, it's so complex, we just have a very simple uh, description there and, and and that's what he was hiding behind. And it is true. I mean, we don't understand how God did it, but God has made it clear enough so we know what the facts are about it. But people think, well, that's just kind of a metaphor. I mean, I experienced this guy was saying that. And, uh, and they hide behind that and say, well, it, there's really something. What they're saying is the scriptures mean something that they, more than what they say. You're interpreting and twisting it. And, and, and it's a sad, it's a sta sad situation. And the point is you can't, because after each day, I mean, if you believe that, you say, well, this is just an evolutionary process. And, and, and then each day God said it was good and it was very good. Well, if that's the case, that process required life and death of organisms all along the way. Well, how could God at the end of each day, which may represent some vast evolutionary period, say, and it was good. Well, you know, the, the raptors ate the, the herbivorous dinosaurs and they moved on to something else. And, you know, that makes no sense. God, death is, is, is not part of God's original plan. God didn't use death in a process of creating things. It is just not logical sense. It's a theological disconnect. We're going back to uh, Patriarchs and Prophets, page 45. Again, that chapter, the creation. God created man in his own image. Here is no mystery. There is no ground for the supposition that man was evolved by slow degrees of development from the lower forms of animal or vegetable life. I mean, she's speaking directly against the evolutionary theory that was coming in at the time. Such teaching, she says, lowers the great work of the creator to the level of man's narrow earthly conceptions. Men are so intent upon excluding God from the sovereignty of the universe that they degrade man and defraud him of the dignity of his origin. I mean, we evolved from ape-like creatures? I mean, how does that make you feel? I mean, really? He who set the starry worlds on high and tinted with delicate skill the flowers of the field, who filled the earth and the heavens with the wonders of his power, when he came to crown his glorious work, to place one in the midst to stand as ruler of the fair earth, did not fail to create a being worthy of the hand that gave him life. See, we're created in the image of God. We, we didn't evolve and therefore have no morals or no standards or no anything. We were created in the image of God, and God gave us a standard to follow. And God uh, is our creator, and we worship a God that created us. And then I love this down the bottom in there. The genealogy of our race, as given by inspiration, traces back its origin not to a line of developing germs, mollusks, and quadrupeds, but to the great creator, Though formed from the dust, Adam was the son of God. I, I guess as a biologist, I can really... There she is. I mean, she's, she's taking on the textbooks we have today. There she is. She's saying, don't believe it. That's not how it happened. We were created in the image of God. And that's another point about evolution, the whole thing about well, who we are as a person, you know. Uh, how is there any right or wrong or moral values if we just evolved from something? 
And that's not the truth. The truth is we have a creator who has given us a moral standard and wants to recreate us and, in fact, redeem us from our fallen state. The interesting thing about creation and the Sabbath, as we go through, there we had it at creation, there we had it where God reiterates that at the uh, fourth commandment, and there in the Psalms, he sings Psalms about God creating all things. It keeps popping up through the Bible. But the interesting thing is that it comes right back down to our time, and again, we covered this at the breakout session, that it is part of that last movement. Because if you have Revelation 10, if you look at Revelation 10 in your Bible, that's where that great angel is opening the book and standing on the land and standing on the sea and proclaims that there's time no longer. And here it is. It says, well, before we read that, the point is Revelation 10 describes, and I can remember how excited I was when I listened to Kenneth Cox years and years ago as he explained it. I thought, wow, there it is. The Millerite movement there described in Revelation 10, where he said, give me the book, and I ate the book, and it was sweet in my mouth, and it was bitter in my stomach, describing that period that those early Millerite believers uh, were proclaiming that Jesus was coming in 1844. It was a sweet experience, and then he didn't come, and they went through that horrible, bitter experience. And, and how wonderful that that whole experience is written out there ahead of time in Revelation 10. And the whole thing that kicked off this last movement there in 1844, starting with William Miller and others, is these, are these verses. And there it says in Revelation 10, verses 5 and 6, And the angel which I saw stand upon the sea and upon the earth, lifted up his hand to heaven, and swore by him that liveth forever and ever, who created heaven and the things that are therein, or that therein are, and the earth and the things that therein are, and the sea and the things which are therein, that there should be time no longer. So here it is, that great angel comes down in Ellen White, and we talked about that at the breakout session, is no, no other than Christ himself coming out, proclaiming that this is the end of prophetic time. There it is, October 22, 1844, was going to be the end of prophetic time. And when the people go through that last great uh, time of proclamation, it was going to be a terribly bitter experience for them. And, and it was. And then, as you look at the very end part of Revelation 10, where the message is, you must prophesy again. And the people realize, we're not finished yet. We've got to keep going. There's more work that we have to do. But the point is, the very pillar of that last 1844 movement involved creation. Because it was a time when evolution was being developed, or, or certainly, our, I mean, it had been in Greek philosophy for, for millennia, for hundreds and, and thousands of years. But it was a time where, we needed to, where God needed to reemphasize creation because all these false doctrines were coming to the forefront as well. So the very movement there, proclaiming Jesus was coming, was, creating, was proclaiming God as creator. And then we get through that movement, and now we come to the movement of us, the Seventh-day Adventist Church. Out of that movement of young people, predominantly young people, that were going out to change the world there in the Millerite movement, we come to the early establishment of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, and the people come together, and the publishing work starts, and we start establishing sanitariums and educational institutions, and the, world, and the word and the movement goes around the world. And part of that movement, and the core of that movement, is the three angels' messages there in Revelation 14. And 
How does it start? Revelation 14, 6 and 7. And I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach unto them that dwell on the earth, and to every nation and kindred and tongue and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to Him, for the hour of His judgment has come. So we have a message here that's talking about uh, a worldwide message. It's talking about living holy lives, you know, giving God glory, uh, living a sanctified life giving that message, loud message to the world, and the judgment hour that, you know, what Jesus is doing in the heavenly sanctuary, talking about the judgment. But what, how does it sort of end that first angel there? And worship him that made heaven and earth and the sea and the fountains of waters. Now that's essentially a quote uh, from the fourth commandment. So there in Revelation is our church depicted uh, as growing up with this three angels' messages, and uh, part of that three angels' message is that Sabbath commandment, and at the core of that Sabbath commandment is God as the creator. And that's a message we need to take now, that central pillar for us as Seventh-day Adventists is God as creator. Is it no wonder the devil's attacking one of the central pillars of our faith? Science versus revelation. We mentioned that before. Sure, I'm a scientist, but I also believe in revelation. Other scientists believe in science, but they don't believe in revelation. She says here, again, uh, this is from the literal week. Geologists claim to find evidence from the earth itself that it is very much older than the mosaic record teaches. Such reasoning has led many professed Bible believers to adopt the position that the, cre the days of creation were vast, indefinite periods. Again, theistic evolution. But apart from Bible history, geology can prove nothing. Those who doubt, and this is what she says, if you begin to toy with doubt, those who doubt the reliability of the records of the Old and New Testaments will go, be led to go a step further and doubt the existence of God. And then having lost their anchor, they are left to beat about upon the rocks of infidelity. It's, it, it just all falls apart. God, she says in page 115 in the literal week, God is the foundation of everything. All true science is in harmony with his works. And this is going back to you and talking about academic freedom. Well, God is the foundation. All true education leads to obedience to his government. Science opens up new wonders to our view. She soars high and explores new depths. It's kind of very sort of the way she writes this is quite, quite, quite descriptive. But she, and she's talking about science here, but she brings nothing from her research that conflicts with divine revelation. Ignorance may seek to support false views of God by appeals to science, but the book of nature and the written word shed light upon each other. And I can say that as a scientist. I'm a scientist. And now we go through. If you come to, to Weimar, we'll, we'll have, we teach, uh, I teach foundational biology. If you want to be amazed, start looking at DNA and what goes on in the cell. I mean, it's just mind-boggling what's going on. It reveals God, the creator. And the point is, those of us here are reformers. We need to carry the message as articulated by the new general conference president to go back to the old ways because Bible study leads to reformation. And, and just as the Bible depicts our church there in Revelation 14, it also depicts a remnant that carry on the work of reformation. And it says there in Isaiah 58, And they that shall be of these 
of thee shall build up the old waste places, shall build the old waste places. Thou shalt raise up the foundations of many generations, and thou shalt be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of paths to dwell in. So you need to go out and you need to be reformers. You need to carry the truth and don't be deceived by pagan philosophies. So may God bless you as you carry the torch of truth and the Reformation forward and as you worship, continue to worship uh, in the next and the upcoming meetings. And let's just stand for a closing word of prayer. Father in heaven, it is such a privilege to have the understanding of the truths that you've given to us as a people. And to not have to doubt and wonder where we came from or wonder what is right and wrong because you've provided all that for us. You're our creator. You created us in the, in the world, in the universe there at the beginning. And not only that, you've shown us the way of salvation and you offer redemption and a means to recreate us. So Father... Help us to realize we're only pilgrims in this world. Help us to keep our eye on heaven and realize that what you have prepared for us is, is greater than, than our, our, our most amazing imaginations. And help us to realize that sometimes we, we see the world and we begin to think, well, maybe the world has something to offer. But help us to realize that the world has nothing to offer, that everything and all true happiness is in following you and getting this work done and getting to heaven where our real home is. So we just thank you for this group of young people. We thank you for this conference, that there's a place. We thank you for this institute, that there's a place where we're unashamed to stand up and teach the truth and help us to have clear minds. Empower us with your spirit. Help us to overcome sin so we can go out and help others and that people will look at us and say, I want something that that person has. Help us to, to go out in your spirit and reach others Bless us and keep us. Be with every family represented here, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.